Hello and welcome to the October 6th Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick overview of the new material you'll find in the journal. The first article I'll mention comes from researchers from University of Washington who conducted COVID-19 case counts across several adult and family homeless shelters in King County, Washington, between January and April 2020, to demonstrate how active surveillance and surge testing could identify symptomatic or mild cases. Routine surveillance involves self-selected participation at staffed kiosks in shelters during standardized days and times. Surge testing was initiated on 30th of March, 2020, and continued through April 24, in collaboration with public health authorities to conduct contact tracing at six shelters where cases of COVID-19 were previously detected. During these one-day events, the researchers offered testing to all residents and staff. Among 1,434 encounters, 29 cases of SARS-CoV-2 infection were detected across five shelters. Most of those cases were detected during surge testing events rather than routine surveillance, and of those, most were asymptomatic at the time of sample collection. 86% of persons with positive test results slept in a communal space rather than in private or shared rooms. According to the authors, their findings provide key insights into detection strategies for SARS-CoV-2 in vulnerable homeless populations. In the next article, authors from the Guidelines International Network and Joanna Briggs Institute discuss several potential strategies for those developing guidelines and recommendations related to COVID-19. The sudden emergence and scale of the COVID-19 pandemic have led to substantial pressure and heightened expectations for accelerated systematic reviews and rapid guidelines. Researchers, reviewers, and guideline developers have been tasked with rapid development of clinical guidance in an emerging field and with types of evidence that they may not have used previously. The evidence base for COVID-19 is characterized by many studies that are poorly designed and conducted, presenting numerous complications for guideline developers. In an accompanying article, authors from University of Paris and Cochrane, France, propose an evidence ecosystem for COVID-19-related studies that could minimize multiple low-quality reviews and helps connect evidence generation, synthesis, and decision-making. The proposed ecosystem consists of continuous mapping of all available trial evidence evaluating the effect of interventions for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19. Next is a systematic review that concludes that COVID-19 is spread most often through respiratory droplets or aerosols with little evidence supporting transmission through surfaces. The authors identified and evaluated scientific articles and government reports released between January and September 2020 to determine the viral host and environmental factors that contribute to transmission of COVID-19. They found that although several experimental studies suggest that virus particles could live for hours after inoculation in aerosols or on surfaces, the real-world studies that detect viral RNA in the environment report very low levels on surfaces, and few have isolated viable virus on surfaces. Strong evidence from case and cluster reports indicate that respiratory transmission is dominant, with proximity and ventilation being key determinants of transmission risk. In the few cases where direct contact or transmission from materials or surfaces was presumed, respiratory transmission could not be ruled out. The researchers also identified patterns in virus transmission. The evidence suggests that COVID-19 transmission peaks around one day before symptom onset 
and declines within a week of symptom onset. All transmissions occur early on and none have ever been documented after a patient has had symptoms for at least a week. Most persons do not transmit the virus, whereas some cause many secondary cases and transmission clusters called superspreading events. According to the authors, their findings should help to inform evidence-based policies and practices to help educate the public and slow the spread of this disease. Singapore is one of the most densely populated small island states in the world. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Singapore implemented large-scale institutional isolation units called community care facilities to combat the outbreak in their community. They have stable, low-risk COVID-19 patients in these facilities from April through August 2020. These facilities were created rapidly by converting existing public spaces into isolation facilities, and each was augmented by telemedicine to enable a low healthcare worker-patient ratio. In the first month, a total of 3,758 patients were admitted to four of the facilities and 4,929 in-house medical consults occurred. The authors report that 136 patients were transferred to a hospital and only one patient died. No healthcare workers became infected. These results demonstrate that such facilities can successfully provide holistic patient care in the face of a public health crisis when healthcare resources are needed. Next is a study that found that glucocorticoids are associated with an increased risk for infection, even at doses as low as 5 milligrams or less per day. These findings are significant as low-dose glucocorticoids are generally considered safe and are widely prescribed. Physicians should consider this information when weighing the benefits and risks of glucocorticoid treatment for patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Glucocorticoids are effective for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis when added to disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. The goal is short-term use, yet up to 60% of patients with RA remain on long-term glucocorticoids, especially at low doses. While the risk for infection at high doses is well established, the risk with low-dose glucocorticoid therapy is less clear. The researchers used claims data to study more than 200,000 patients with RA and compared those receiving stable disease-modifying agents, including biologics, for the preceding six months with and without glucocorticoids. They found that patients receiving higher-dose glucocorticoids, greater than 10 milligrams per day, had more than twice the risk of serious infection as patients not receiving glucocorticoids, although few patients were on these doses. Even patients on the lowest dose had about a 30% increase in the risk of infection. According to the study authors, glucocorticoids may continue to be an important part of treatment for many patients with rheumatoid arthritis, especially if other treatments are not fully controlling their symptoms but these findings should help physicians better understand potential adverse consequences. The next article documents that a national vaccination program significantly decreased the prevalence of vaccine-targeted human papillomavirus types in the South Central Asian country of Bhutan. These results provided the first evidence of the effectiveness of a high-coverage national HPV vaccination program in a lower-middle-income country. The optimal size of primary care physician's patient panel is uncertain. This is important as panel size plays an increasing role in measuring primary care provider workload, setting limits on practice capacity, and determining reimbursement. Panel size may also affect quality of care and contribute to physician burnout. Next is a brief research report that aims to shed light on how to best measure panel size. 
The researchers calculated panel sizes for a prototypical physician practice using two different sets of measurement rules. The prototypical physician, described by the authors, would have reported a panel of 700 patients with one set of rules, but 5,004 patients with another. According to the authors, these findings suggest that a standardized method is needed to calculate panel size. A standard approach would reduce confusion about appropriate panel targets, decreasing the risk for both inappropriately large panels with negative effects on quality access and provider burnout and inappropriately small panels with waste of scarce primary care resources. Quality measurement has become an important tool by which payers and policymakers push to improve outcomes, lower costs, and improve clinician and patient experience. High stakes applications of quality measures, such as in paying for performance or steering patients to preferred providers, may not be subject to methodological scrutiny. Researchers from the RAND Corporation ranked 55 health systems in Minnesota and California between 2014 and 2016 using a composite model that summarized individual measures of quality, accounted for their correlation, and did not require healthcare systems to report every measure. They then assessed the model's validity, reliability, and stability. They found that their method was valid in that it was broadly representative of the component measures and was not dominated by any single measure. The measure was stable because fewer than half the systems changed ranks by more than two ranks from year to year. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that their model could be used to reliably classify health systems based on their quality. The next articles are a systematic review and guideline from the VA and Department of Defense for managing dyslipidemia to reduce cardiovascular disease in adults. The final guideline contains 27 recommendations but the authors highlight seven areas that are especially relevant to primary care physicians. The updated guideline continues to focus on cardiovascular disease risk reduction through management of lipid levels among persons most likely to benefit. The primary critical outcome of interest in grading the evidence was cardiovascular mortality, with cardiovascular morbidity considered an important but less critical outcome by which to grade evidence. The most noteworthy recommendation that goes against common practice is the concept of ordering much less lipid testing. The authors ascertain that it followed this has the potential of saving a substantial amount of resources and reducing inconvenience to patients. The next article reports a study that used data from 827 patients with COVID-19 collected upon hospital admission to the Johns Hopkins Health System to develop a decision tool called the COVID-19 Inpatient Risk Calculator. This risk calculator model improved accurate at predicting whether a patient's disease would worsen while hospitalized and at one point in their care that might happen. Older age and obesity were found to be independent risk factors for progression of COVID-19 to severe disease or death. The article also provides an interactive version of the risk calculator that clinicians can use to predict the course of disease among their own patients. In the United States, the efficacy and safety of convalescent plasma for treating COVID-19 is currently being tested in randomized placebo-controlled trials. Based on earlier evidence, the treatment was granted emergency use authorization by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which facilitates the availability and unapproved uses of medical products during a public health emergency such as the COVID-19 pandemic. In a commentary published in Annals on September 25th, members of the National Institutes of Health COVID-19 Treatment Guidelines Panel provide their views regarding the use of convalescent plasma for treating COVID-19 and explain why data is insufficient for them to recommend for or against this treatment at this time. 
While the COVID-19 pandemic continues, so does the epidemic of opioid misuse, and it remains critical to determine factors that have contributed to this latter epidemic. The next article analyzes data submitted to the US FDA over the past two decades for new opioid approvals and documents that these data were lacking in critical safety and efficacy information. During this time frame, the FDA approved opioids on the basis of pivotal trials of short or intermediate duration, often in narrowly defined pain populations, excluding patients who did not tolerate the drugs. Another serious public health issue in the US is firearm-related injury. In 2018, approximately 40,000 persons died from a firearm injury, representing a 20% increase in the death rate since 2009. Although the healthcare-related effect of firearm injury is estimated to be high, existing data are largely cross-sectional, do not include data on pre-injury and post-injury healthcare visits and related costs, and use hospital charges rather than actual monetary payments to estimate the cost of firearm injury. Researchers from Brown University studied insurance claims data from five Blue Cross Blue Shield plan states to compare actual monetary payments and healthcare utilizations within the six months before and after a firearm injury. They found that in the six months after a firearm injury, patient-level healthcare visits and costs increased by three to 20 times compared with the six months before it. The analysis did not measure intangible costs such as lost wages, fear, and death. The researchers also noted that although mental health claims increased by 100 to 300 percent after an injury, depending on whether a patient was discharged or admitted to the hospital, these claims increased proportionally less than those for general health care. This may reflect the fact that mental health care is often received and paid for out of network, but more likely shows a lack of diagnosis and or access to mental health care services. According to the researchers, these findings show that firearm injuries have a substantial impact on the U.S. healthcare system costs and should inform the prioritization of firearm injury prevention strategies. The next article addresses concerns related to the quality of care in private equity-owned acute care hospitals. The researchers studied merger and acquisitions reports to identify 130 hospitals under private equity control in 2018 and compared them with similarly sized and located hospitals not owned by private equity firms. They found that private equity hospitals were on average located in lower income, more rural areas, and had fewer patients discharged and employees per bed. They also had slightly lower patient experience scores. Several economic outcomes were similar and quality of care was not fully measured. The researchers suggest more research to uncover potential differences in quality of care. On October 5th, Annals published the American College of Physicians Clinical Recommendations for the Use of Remdesivir in the Treatment of Patients with COVID-19, a topic of heightened interest given the announcement that remdesivir was among the therapies that President Trump received shortly following announcement of his COVID-19 diagnosis. Based on a systematic review of available evidence also published in Annals, ACP offers the following recommendations. Five days of remdesivir for treatment of moderate COVID-19 or for patients with severe COVID-19 who do not require mechanical ventilation or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Consider extending the use of remdesivir to 10 days in patients with severe COVID-19 requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO during an initial five-day course. Remdesivir is not recommended for patients with alanine immunotransferase greater than or equal to five times the upper limit of normal 
or with glomerular filtration rates of less than 30 mLs per minute. The available evidence defines moderate COVID-19 disease as disease requiring hospitalization with radiographic evidence, pulmonary intricates, and oxygen saturation greater than 94% on room air. Severe COVID-19 is defined as hospitalized patients meeting one of, or more of the following criteria, radiographic infiltrates by imaging or clinical assessment, and an oxygenation saturation less than 94% on room air, or respiratory rate greater than 24 breaths per minute without supplemental oxygen or requiring supplemental oxygen or mechanical ventilation. Next is a randomized controlled trial that shows that starting physical therapy right away rather than taking the usual watch and wait approach helps to improve function and other outcomes for patients presenting to primary care settings with recent onset back pain with sciatica. In the clinical trial led by researchers at University of Utah, 220 adults who consulted their primary care physician for back pain with sciatica, which had begun within the past 90 days, were randomly assigned to either four weeks of physical therapy or usual care for four weeks. Physical therapists primarily used exercises and manual techniques such as hands-on spinal mobilization, telling the specifics of the treatment to individual patients. Those in the other group received no physical therapy but were advised to remain active and seek additional care if they needed it after four weeks. Patients who had completed physical therapy immediately after their primary care visit reported less disability than patients who took the wait-and-see approach. During the one-year study, a small percentage of participants chose to receive steroid injections or undergo surgery to treat their pain. These interventions were equally common whether or not patients received early physical therapy. The difference in outcomes between the two treatment groups were generally large enough to be considered clinically meaningful. Next is an article in which authors from the American College of Physicians Scientific Policy Committee highlight applicability to the United States of the World Health Organization's recommendations related to treatment of hepatitis C virus infection. The WHO primarily targets their recommendations towards policymakers in low and middle income countries, but the authors believe that these recommendations are relevant to the United States where equity and resource allocation issues are also important considerations. Approximately one-third of adults 65 years and older in the U.S. own a gun because some of those older gun owners will develop some sort of impairment in their lifetime, it is important for them to consider future firearm transfers. A team led by researchers from the University of Colorado used data from the second national firearm survey to describe the frequency of advanced planning by older gun owners. Questions assessed whether respondents had a plan for transferring their firearms to someone else in the event of death or their inability to handle a gun safely. Participant characteristics included demographics, caregiving for someone with dementia, and firearm-related measures such as type and number of guns owned, reasons for ownership, training, and frequency of handling. The researchers extracted data for persons aged 65 years and older. About one-fifth of the participants had a plan for transferring their firearms in case of impairment, and one-half had a plan for transferring their firearms at death. According to the researchers, these findings suggest an opportunity for healthcare providers to discuss firearm advance planning with appropriate patients. Electronic health record documentation has replaced paper records for most physicians, creating new challenges for the medical practice, including decreased face-to-face -face interaction time with patients, increased documentation burden, and increased burnout. 
Medical scribe programs can ease some of the burden on physicians, but whether practices can justify the additional expense remains unclear. Researchers from the University of Chicago developed a model using Medicare fee-for-service data to determine the number of additional patient visits various specialties would need to cover the cost of implementing scribes in their practice over one year. They found that only a modest increase in patient visits per day was needed to recover cost in all specialties. Just two additional new patient visits or three established patient visits is all that would be needed according to the model. Next is the latest Annals Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds. This Grand Rounds discussion is focused on advising a patient about direct-to-consumer genetic testing and as always is accompanied by video of the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center Grand Rounds on which the article is based. Finally, the October 6th issue includes an in-the-clinic review on delirium and new offerings from On Being a Doctor and Animal Graphic Medicine. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new articles I've mentioned. Stay well, and please return in two weeks for the next Annals podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Wagman for their technical support.